the Sideline Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 12th, and we are back. My name is Justin Berger, and I am joined by Doug Watley and Alec Kieser. We're going to get into college football a little later with our interview with Zach Osterman, but I think we should start with the Astros and their current antics, not their past antics. So, Keys, what did you think about the, uh, what was it, the bench coach for the Astros coming out of the dugout? The, the the word that I used before was vile. I just I, they're just scummy. Like you get they get absolutely protected, so none of the players get in trouble. It, apparently, they were all like hypnotized or whatever to 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 cheat. Okay, whatever. Fine. You don't you want to give the players immunity? You, you did your lawyer thing, Manfred. Whatever. But they're just not only are they being protected by the league, but now if you go after them. There's heavy repercussions, but they're also antagonizing people. Like, it's like hiding behind your mom and still being the bully. Like, it's it's honestly unbelievable. Alex Cintron was the the hitting coach for the Astros. He was the one that was chirping at the opponents the whole game. And then finally this one, there's a reaction, and he's still chirping from his uh, dugout. And then once the guy comes forward, and it's, like, pretty much face-to-face from, what, 30 feet away? He's wrong. then – he just runs. He backs up and lets everyone else get in front of him. And once again, this happened earlier, obviously, with Joe Kelly. I don't think we had a pot at that time. It's we been did. a while. But um, but that one was a little bit social distance. This one, people were pushing and shoving and out the window. And that's the biggest thing. So now uh, the bench coach, what's his name? Um, Cintron, Alex Cintron, 20 games for it in a 60-game season. That's I mean, if you're talking 162 games, that's going to be upwards of, what, 50, 60 games. So that's a yeah. lot in this condensed season. Well, I just my, – my take on it was how – you're – as a bench coach, and that's second in command for most teams, how – Hitting coach, hitting are, coach. He was – oh, he's the hitting coach? I thought he was the yeah. bench coach. Sorry. Whatever. Still, he's a leader on the team, or he's supposed to be. How can you come out of the dugout to antagonize a player and then not only – back away when you're confronted by it but like you're you're in this leadership position you your mouth should be shut yeah, your actions are, are what are you yeah. doing chirping players like that's that's not your you, spot no absolutely not it's it's just it, it it's making them look worse and that people are calling the houston asterisks like yeah well, just Rob Lowe wearing that hat was hilarious yeah i do i want to talk about joe kelly briefly before we move on because he got eight games for that, which is – I think it was 22 is the equivalent for one uh, season of 162. And that – I mean, that's an absurd suspension. We haven't seen that before for a, for a um, pitcher even knowingly intentionally throwing at another team. A couple of things. It was, what, eight games you said? Yeah. So, if you add it up, I would probably – if you break it down – they said they're not taking anything from the Astros. If you go after the Astros, you're going to get in trouble because the league wants to do it themselves. So I'll probably put two on that. It was probably four games suspension for going at the head, and that's a problem. You can't have that. And then two games because of his past. Joe Kelly is not a clean guy. Like, this is a known thing. He's a fun guy. Don't get me wrong. but He's a Red Sox folk hero. You know, he's, like, he's a little bit of a troublemaker, and he'll back his guys up. And fans like that. That makes the game more entertaining. But if you're that guy, you have to live with the consequences. So yeah. in the grand scheme of things, it's people love him, but I don't think eight games knowing the situation is all that 
preposterous. I saw it, and my initial reaction was like, yeah. But, like, I didn't take into account if you want to compare it to 162 games and what the equivalent of that would be and how that would line up with how other people have been. And so, like, Twitter blew up immediately and was, like, defended Joe Kelly, obviously, because everybody hates the Astros. But I I think, like you said, four games probably for – for throwing at the head. I don't Twice, understand two. how they got he came to eight. After two guys. Yeah, he went after two guys. And so, I don't know. I, I, I'm i glad somebody did it, and that guy's Joe Kelly. And, and while he did get a slap on the wrist or maybe a little harder, maybe a little backhand across the face, um, he did it for the majority of baseball America. And so, he yeah. became a, a, not only a Red Sox hero and legend that night, but a, a baseball hero. I would say 95% of the world was okay with it, but the one of the five percenters was, of course, John Heyman, uh, typical of him being old man media. Just, I, I can't stand his, his takes. I think he's an in, incredibly intelligent writer. His takes are stuck in 1985, though. Yeah, Karan and he doesn't apologize for it. And was just like, this, this take stinks. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about the... Uh, the two and three St. Louis Cardinals. They have not played a game since July 29th. Um, They were set to come back last Friday, so five days ago, and they had another mini COVID outbreak. Um, This is just problematic for baseball because we saw before earlier in the season with the Marlins having a breakout after players went out in Atlanta, actually, during a preseason game. Um, but not being able to control yourself in a situation where you know you have to use caution is has to be extremely troubling for Manfred and the Cardinals organization. It's not like they got it by going to the grocery store, just kind of in a, in a simple way, in a sense. They got it because, or at least – Reports have said that they went to a casino and, or certain members of the team went to a casino, came back, probably gave it to a couple other guys who gave it to other guys. So it, it's very easily, easily spread. Um, it's unfortunate because it canceled some games for the Cubs and they're on a hot streak. But for the Cardinals, they're supposed to be top of the NL Central, top two, top three. And for them to have this many games off, and we don't even know if they can finish the season. They're going to probably have to do, by the logistics of it, four or five double headers and play every single day to yeah. finish 60 by everyone else's time too. So there's just so much going on. And for it all to be because of immaturity, realistically, of not controlling yourself in a pandemic when everyone else kind of is that your, your teammates are with and, and opponents and everyone else, it's a little bit childish. Yeah, and we have uh, a source actually from St. Louis that told us that he's seen Cardinals multiple times in that very casino that they contracted COVID from. Um, and, and like we saw with Pulisak and Clevenger this past weekend in Chicago, I, I just – I don't – if playing a major league sport isn't enough to entice you to not put that – entire thing in jeopardy then i don't know what is i don't i don't know i, I yeah. just like what's what's so hard about just it, it's 60 days suck it up seriously like you're you're getting paid to play professional baseball like god you can not go to the bar for three three months like, yes it sucks going to the bar is fun but to, to also to just play, i mean i i just i don't i i don't understand the irresponsibility i just don't get it and there's no excuse for, for it it's baffling 
forget you're a major league baseball player, just have some social responsibility and realize what's going on. Um, Doug, you mentioned hot starts. Um, your Cubbies oh, yeah. are one of them. Not, not super surprising, but definitely a little bit shocking. I mean, absolutely. 11 and three. I expected a good start, not necessarily the best record in the MLB. And that's what we've gotten so far led by the starting pitching. It's really been old man, Lester, former Red Sox. It's been Hendricks had an unbelievable start to start the year. Um, and really it, the depth of the starting five was a question mark because Quintana has been out. So Alec Mills has to step up and, and um, Tyler Chatwood, some other guys that have had some rocky pass, but putting it together with this offense and realistically the offense, by the way, it's not Rizzo every time. It's not Bryant. It's really the five through eight guys that are producing towards the bottom of the lineup to get them to where they're at right now. 11 and three best record in the MLB. Um, really, I think like five games ahead of the ML central. It's, it's an impressive start and a lot to look forward to hopefully with this season coming to a successful finish in the upcoming months. Yeah, and you mentioned it hasn't come from the usual guys. As a, as a Chris Bryant fantasy owner, I know that guy has not been yeah. producing. <laughs> and, and so just like it's kind of similar with the Red Sox lineup and J.D. Martinez. Like the, those guys aren't going to be awful for the entire season. Eventually right. the Rizzos and, and the Bryants and, and the Javis in that lineup are going to turn it on, and then that's a scary team. And guess what? When Lester, or not just Lester in specific, but um, the starting pitching in general, when they're not as good they are, because realistically – they're kind of playing at their peaks right now. I don't really expect it to last the whole season. But when they drop off a little bit, that's when Rizzo and Brian and some of those, like Baez, even though he's been having a decent year, they can step up and help it. So it's a nice give and take with the Cubs right now. The one problem, though, I'm sure it happens with every team that – most of the teams, at least right now, bullpen. And it's been a problem for them in past years. Once again, this year, Kimbrell's not the answer – I don't know who is yet, but it's got to be stink. You don't year. like his 200 ERA? <laughs> no, you know what? He's got the worst, worst ERA on the Cubs right now. He got pretty much pushed out of the closer spot, but he's still throwing 97 with movement. So I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, a couple other teams that have been off to a pretty surprising start, both negatively and positively. The Orioles are over 500 right now in a that team very good East. As as a fan of the Red Sox who, is, who had to watch the Orioles kind of beat up on them in the first uh, series of the season, that team isn't as bad as, as people think it is. They have some pretty decent young players. Their pitching staff is not great, um, and their bullpen might be even worse. But there are some guys who can absolutely rake on that team. So they're not, they're not the double-A Orioles of last year. Although their record might have reflected that because their pitching staff absolutely stinks. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Uh, Detroit also has had a good start. Uh, and that, the Central, the both, well, your Central is good. But the AL Central is really interesting this year because the Twins are supposed to be one of the best teams in baseball. The White Sox are supposed to be one of the best new teams in baseball. And here's Detroit with 600-year-old Ron Gardenhire at the uh, at the head, and they're nine and seven, and been playing well. And Cleveland's still there, of course. Kansas City sucks because it's not once in a blue moon, and they're not going for it. Um, but I do quickly want to talk about the Braves. So everyone knows Mike Soroka got injured; he's out for the season, which sucks because now the Braves really don't have starting pitching. Um, 
Max Fried is anchoring the rotation now. Hopefully Cole Hamels will be back in three weeks. But after them, it's a question mark. And even Cole Hamels as a 37-year-old is a question mark too. So it's just – I don't know where – the offense is still amazing. Acuna – we're the highest scoring offense in the league and the best bullpen in the league so far. Um, but Acuna being injured the last two nights, that's concerning to me. Not having Soroka for the rest of the season sucks. And for half of the um, – no, all right, fuck that. Osterman texted me. He's ready to go right now. Do you just want to scrap this? And um, no, I said we can go. keep it, and then yeah, keep we'll it. just yeah, we'll get yeah. Osterman. No, we, no, this is good. This is organic. He's ready to All go. Right. Let's go. Yeah. All right. We now welcome to the show Zach Osterman, the IU insider for the Indy Star. Zach, I want you to pretend nothing's going on in the world and tell me who the Hoosiers would be facing in the Rose Bowl in January. Uh, who did I actually pick to win the West? Um, you know, I think I, I think I picked Minnesota, which last year I picked Nebraska. So, I mean, that I, my, my preseason predictions may be the kiss of death, but, um, yeah, I think I had Minnesota. Of course that was, well, that was pre everything shutting down, but that was even pre Rashad Bateman opting out. So my, my, my attitude probably would have changed a little bit then, but, um, of course, we would have seen IU Minnesota uh, in the revised Big Ten schedule that lasted all of six days had right. had the Big Ten decided to plow forward. Uh, how much weight do you put into that schedule? Because we were kind of talking earlier, and it kind of seems with how quickly they went away from it that it was a little smokescreeny. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, logistically, they had to be able to tell the the, the programs when they could start practicing. So, you know, it, it – one of the sort of weird um, problems with a, a, a major conference power structure is that you have these three separate groups that all sort of want to feel like they're in charge. You have the coaches, obviously, then you have the, uh, the athletic directors, and then you have the presidents and chancellors. The decision was always going to be made by the presidents and chancellors. And it's not like the coaches or the ADs can look at the presidents and chancellors and say, we need your decision right now, no questions asked, or you know, whatever you want to say. Um, but by the same token, the coaches, and I guess to some extent the athletic directors, needed the schedule because they needed to know basically their start dates because you, your start date determines what day you can start camp and then what day you can start to put on pads and, and sort of the different the different layers that you go through in a preseason. So essentially, um, they needed to give the programs a calendar so that they could start planning for the season. And the Big Ten needed until, of course, it wasn't going to cancel the season to operate like it was going to have a season because you can't just one day say, hey, by the way, we've decided to go forward with this. You have 10 days to get ready for your first game. Um, and the the – that's how you wind up with this sort of, you know, dysfunctional timeline, so to speak. And, and obviously, listen, there was a lot more dysfunction than just the schedule on Tuesday, uh, just with regard to, to what happened in the conference. But it, it is just in with regard to the schedule itself, I think the conference could probably have stood to be more transparent about its decision making timeline more generally. But with regard specifically to the schedule, I understand why they debuted it when they did because if the Big Ten wanted to run 
on that schedule starting on Labor Day weekend and moving forward that way. They needed to let their programs know how to schedule their preseasons out, essentially. Right. Um, so now in the world we live in since yesterday, how realistic do you think it is that we are going to, in fact, have a season in the spring? You know, I'll be honest, I think there are going to be a lot of challenges. Um, I think a lot of people are going to try. I think a lot of people were pushing back against it. In fact, I know a lot of people were pushing back against it before this decision was made. Now that it's been made, I think you're going to see a number of those people, you know, come around to the idea that a spring season is better than no season at all for a variety of reasons. There are tons of questions to ask. Um, there are big questions like, for example, whether it is fair or even ethical to ask players to play two seasons in one calendar year. There are tons of small questions to ask. Are you going to play them on the campuses? How are you going to, you know, I mean, is, is signing day going to work the same way? Are you going to try and play them in centralized locations? Will it be a 10-game schedule, a 12-game schedule, an eight-game schedule? What are you going to do? You know, are, are there any contingencies that you can build in for opt-outs? How are you going to handle scholarships and eligibility? You know, are, are, are freshmen who enroll in January going to be immediately eligible to play? But then is that going to start their NCAA eligibility clock? There are just so many questions that you're going to have to answer. And the, the other problem you have here, and this is symptomatic of just sort of a, a wider problem that I think college sports has that's been exposed here in, in the last few weeks is that you still don't have unanimity among the Power Five conferences. So what happens if the SEC and ACC decide to press forward and the Big 12 cancels to go along with the Pac-12 and the Big 10? How does that work? You know, I mean, who is there a playoff? Is there a national champion? Um, you know, the NCAA is going to be asked, well, are these kids going to get a year back? Well, do the kids who you know, theoretically in that hypothetical situation play in the fall, should they get a year back, you know, compared to the kids who can't play in the fall? What happens if kids want to transfer to a school that is going to play in the fall? Can they get immediate eligibility and on and on and on? There are just so many logistical questions. And obviously we've got a lot of time to answer them. You know, no one is disputing that. But by the same token, you know, the, the decision-making process that got us here sure didn't come with a lot of answers itself. And, and it doesn't seem like a lot has been communicated to the member schools, coaches, programs in terms of what the way forward from here will be. Um, and so it doesn't inspire, you know, just frankly, a, a ton of confidence for being able to solve all those problems between now and whenever we'd start a spring season. I want to talk about um, how the conference is going to set up and potentially playing in the spring. And that's essentially five or six months away. Um, but when COVID-19 first happened in mid-March, um, it was essentially five months prior to right now. Um, so like you said, there wasn't a ton of answers coming out in, in the previous five months. What were, do you know any of the preliminary discussions of how they were trying to set it up safely that just led them to fully abandoning the, the season? Well, I think a lot of it was, was pretty public. You know, I think that, that in fairness, as much as everyone, including – me has criticized um, college athletics leadership in the last, you know, 24, 48, 72, 96 hours. I do think there was a real good faith effort made to get us to a place where, where we could have college sports, just frankly. Um, 
but I think that there were, I mean, first of all, and this, this is, this will apply forever. This will apply in five months if the conversation hasn't changed. First of all, this is happening in part because the country has not gotten to a place wherever you want to approach this politically, the country has not gotten to a place where um, the, the, the spread of the virus is checked more widely. And so that is a big part of what created the concern about bringing students back to campuses and introducing, you know, athletes into a much sort of more crowded environment in terms of population. Um, I think another thing that, you know, I don't necessarily know if the outcome changes if this doesn't happen, but when you go back to talking about just the very decentralized power structure in, in college sports, everyone, everyone thinks that the NCAA is in charge in college sports. And in the last 10 to 15 years, that really hasn't been the case. The power five conferences have been the ones making the money, which means they've been the ones calling the shots. And, and when the NCAA has sort of suited their purposes, they've been happy to go along. You know, the, the conferences, for example, don't want to have to set up their own apparatus for investigating recruiting, you know, issues. The conference is happy to let the NCAA handle big logistical questions like the, uh, you know, like, like eligibility certification. But when the conferences want to ignore the NCAA, like they did in realignment, like to an extent they did when they all started their conference TV networks, like to an extent they did when they voted to give themselves more autonomy in 2014, they've been happy to do that too. And everybody's been happy to do that because, you know, just quite frankly, it's made everybody a lot of money. Um, and it's made making that money a lot easier. But now when you get into a crisis and you really could use some joined up thinking and some really sort of strong central unifying leadership, here we are. And it's just, you know, the, these, these, these structures suddenly don't exist. And so you spent so much time seeing different schools enacting certain protocols and then other schools like I think at one point if I'm remembering correctly Kentucky even said they weren't going to um, test for the virus they were going to test for antibodies and they had some very convoluted explanation for why that was and that was how they were going to control the spread of the virus um, at least initially and it took you know two or three months for NCAA wide recommendations to come into effect here that that basically everyone could follow and it wasn't even until last week at the announcement of the schedule that the big 10 said hey this is going to be our protocol this is where it's coming from you know these are the these are the sort of decision makers and experts and policies that inform it and on and on and on i mean it just it's 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 been so sort of disharmonious through this whole process that i think the other thing that when we get to a moment like this and it seems like people don't have a lot of answers and don't have a lot of sort of detail they can offer to explain how we got to here now, I think part of the reason is because we have spent so much of the spring and summer just kind of acting in a very disparate way in terms of leadership. And that's, you know, that, that's something that obviously we can't fix now. And it's something I don't really think we're going to be able to fix, you know, between now and, and let's say next February. I do think it is something that college athletics is going to need to, to sort of address more broadly very soon, to be quite frank. Um, I do, you did mention the players and I wanted to talk about 
I mean, on Twitter, what was three days ago, the we want to play movement and the we want to coach movement um, took the uh, – it started with Trevor Lawrence and then Justin Fields took up um, arms about that. And you had Harbaugh and Saban saying in the last couple of days that they believe their players are safer with them rather than being released on the campuses or back in their um, communities at home. So I, I was just interested to get your take on that. Uh, we want to play movement and what you think of people like Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh who have a, a lot of swing in their states. Um, what, what your thoughts were about that? Yeah. I mean, I think at one level, you know, that some of that probably came too late. I think that I certainly think that the, the, the athlete part of it is maybe reflective of athletes recognizing now, particularly in the absence of, of you know, firmer leadership, frankly, that, um, that there is an opening for them to seize, to, to, to speak with a louder, more unified voice and to seize a, a larger seat at the table. And I think that is something that could survive this regardless of whether we play a season or not. Um, regardless if some teams play in the fall, some teams play in the spring, some, some teams potentially don't play at all. Um, the other thing, you know, the, the, the one thing I would say about athletes and, and coaches is I think it probably came a little late in the sense of it, it did seem to kind of spark a groundswell of support for, you know, trying to change people's minds about this. Um, but it, it just sort of – you do feel like if, if maybe everyone had been more heavily kind of on the awareness bandwagon like this back in April or May, maybe we would have gotten a little bit more sense of urgency, a little bit more organization, a little bit more joined up thinking. And I think the other thing I, I will say, without wanting to be overly critical of anyone, because the reality is that for these athletes and coaches, regardless of what we think about anything else, the, the last, you know, 48 hours have just – sucked i mean they've just they've sucked really really bad and, and you have a lot of sympathy for them in that regard um but i will say that that from the coaches in particular some of that kind of spiraled quickly into into sort of empty threats and whining and i think that that probably hasn't helped you know just the general discourse around this in the last 48 hours either and there and there's been a little bit of talk like if you look at the nba and the nhl how they've had a bubble and people have kind of asked why the MLB hasn't done the same thing or the NFL on, and you kind of touched upon not really that topic, but something similar. And one of the giant hurdles that was amateurism. So could you just kind of explain why that's such a, a big hurdle to potentially, um, you know, getting special treatment for athletes? Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially one of the, the core principles of amateurism is that you is that students should, you know, athletes should not be compensated um, because they should not be treated differently from normal students because they are normal students and they're students first and athletes second, et cetera. If you get to a, um, you know, just to be quite frank, if you get to a point where the, the athletes are being asked to, sequester themselves in a dorm or something that's athletes only to only take online classes 
to 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 act so differently even amid you know all of this even amid everything else that's going on um act so differently than the rest of the student body it is it is very very difficult frankly for anyone at that point i think to to make the, a genuine argument for the idea that you're treating the athletes the same as you're treating the rest of the student body and certainly i think if anyone wanted to find a uh a lawyer who would be happy to make that argument i'm sure you could and so it just it it's you know there's talk of this with basketball um in a way that is maybe, you know, if, if you get to a point where basically you sort of cram the basketball season into an extended winter break because a lot of schools are going to try and keep students off campus early next year, you know, even if they're starting their semesters on time. I know IU doesn't come back, I think, until late February. So then maybe you could build a bubble without calling it a bubble. I don't know. Um, but in terms of actually sort of this hard and fast, you're going to go to this hotel, you're not allowed to leave. If you leave, there will be penalties. You'll be held back, blah, blah, blah. That's, that would just kind of cut straight at the core of one of the most base arguments of, of amateurism. And it just, it just wouldn't fly, quite frankly. I want to get into a, a happier topic, hopefully. Um, I just I want to live in a, a fantasy world with the four or three of you for the next couple of minutes. And pretend that IU is going to Camp Randall in a couple of weeks and we're going to start the season normally. What were you expecting from this team this fall? You know, I mean, to be honest, and, and I don't mean to, um, <laughs> I don't mean to depress anybody. I, I thought it was going to be a very good team. And, you know, listen, I've, um, I've been around IU football for a long time. I'm, I'm not a fan, obviously, but uh, I am well aware of the program's shortcomings, its modest history, its, its uh, you know, ongoing romance with heartbreak. Um, and so you always kind of look at IU football anytime you, you even, even as a reporter, you sort of look at IU football and you just wonder, well, where's the other shoe? Where's it going to drop? But I'll also say this, um, you know, I, I grew up in Atlanta. I, like I, I grew up watching college football. I know what good college football looks like. I know what a good football team looks like. And, and this, this was one and, and obviously still can be one. It's, it's not like this team is going to completely fall apart. You know, if there is no season, you probably, you know, that's, you would assume that a player like Watt Fillier would just go to the NFL rather than trying to get the year back, that sort of thing. Um, but there's still plenty of talent on this team among its underclassmen, among its, its freshmen, its sophomores, its juniors, recruiting's going well. Um, so I think that, that, you know, this, this was a team that in my mind could absolutely have been at very least looking at, despite I would argue as difficult as if not a slightly more difficult schedule than last year, at very least getting back to eight and four, potentially even nine and three, um, certainly a team that would have no business not being bowl eligible. And if you actually look at the old schedule, and again, this, this probably just depresses IU fans <laughs> that listen to it, but if you actually look at the old schedule, there was a decent argument for the fact that Indiana, or a decent argument for the scenario uh, of Indiana being six and one on Halloween hosting Penn State. Yeah. And, you know, then yep. you can kind of get into um, all sorts of, 
sorry, that's that's my two-year-old. Uh, you can get into <laughs> all sorts of conversations about college game day and rankings and, and whatever else. And of course, that's that's all kind of a moot point now. Um, but this was, I mean, this this was setting up to be a banner year for IU football. And as you know, as as frustrating as that may seem to people, you know, to IU fans who maybe have to let go of that now. The one thing I would say is it wasn't really by accident. You know, this was the product of, of four years of improved recruiting of, you know, I mean, frankly, really more probably the product of about nine or 10 years of improved recruiting of stepped up investment, um, you know, of, of substantial improvement, just not just in infrastructure, but, but just in the way that IU carried itself as a football program. Like I know that, people sometimes kind of divorced the Kevin Wilson era from Tom Allen's tenure. But if Indiana had gone to a bowl this year, they would have been, that would have been four years out of six that they went bowling. And the other two years, they would have gone five and seven with a couple chances in each of those seasons to get to six and six. If they'd beaten Purdue this year, they would have beaten Purdue six out of the last eight seasons. That's, you know, I mean, they're, they're already kind of in the midst of one of their best runs in that rivalry in a while. The point is, when you look at what's happened in the last decade or so around IU football, and certainly when you look at kind of the trajectory of the program from a recruiting and development standpoint under Tom Allen, um, I'm not saying IU is going to be winning the big 10 anytime soon, but IU this, this season wasn't going to be an accident if IU win eight and four or nine and four or, you know, eight and three, you know, nine and three, whatever. Um, it was going to be the product of a long steady building process. And with Tom Allen, you know, having signed a, a lengthy contract extension and quite frankly it looking like nobody's going to have the money to fire anybody for a couple years in college athletics. Um, I don't really foresee, you know, the, the trajectory of the program changing anytime in the immediate future. Yeah. I mean, every time you have Tom Allen leading the helm, um, yeah, not necessarily the product is always going to be good, but at least the attitude from players, coaches, fans, will always be positive. Um, and I've seen Tom Allen on Twitter during this whole thing be very apologetic in a sense, but also positive, always saying it's his guys first. It's, he wants the best for them. And like Zoom calls and, and conversations you've had with Tom Allen over the past month or whatever, since this whole thing's been going on, what is what have you heard from him that either kind of impresses you or whatever emotion you have about what he said? You know, I think that, that – Broadly, I mean, listen, I know we've seen some coaches kind of go rogue on the Big Ten, and a lot of them have kind of walked it back. Scott Frost maybe being kind of the only one that really hasn't in the last, you know, 48 hours. You know, I, I don't mean to belittle the program. Indiana's coach is never going to do that. Like, Michigan's coach can get away with that. Ohio State's coach can get away with that. There's still sort of a, a, a political hierarchy within the conference that is, is going to preclude – is, is going to keep Indiana from – you know, doing that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I think Tom Allen, the one thing I will say about Tom Allen is that, that people can sort of roll their eyes at the, the sloganeering and the, the catchphrases and, you know, LEO and breakthrough and things like that. And I understand why. Um, but I will say as someone that has covered all four of Tom Allen's years at IU, starting with his years as a defensive coordinator, um, it, it, it works. You know, just just to be frank, it, it, kids buy into it, um, coaches buy into it, uh, parents buy into it. You know, I, I remember talking to 
Nick Westbrook's mother in the buildup to the Gator Bowl last year. Nick Westbrook, for those who don't know, is, is a, a now graduated wide receiver, played five years at IU, played for Kevin Wilson, played for Tom Allen. And she was talking about basically sort of the family's relationship with Tom Allen since Indiana didn't, you know, Allen and his staff didn't recruit Nick Westbrook. And, and quite frankly, she didn't say this. I would say this as someone who, who, you know, covered all of Kevin Wilson and then all of Tom Allen. I don't know that IU recruits Nick Westbrook if Tom Allen's a head coach, not because anyone doesn't like anyone, but simply because I think Nick Westbrook's profile as a receiver fits Kevin Wilson's offense a lot differently than it fits the offense Tom Allen has kind of gotten his coordinators to build in, in Bloomington. But the point is, I was talking to her and, and she was talking about the coaching change and, and going through all that and all the uncertainty. And she just said, you know, she said, you hear, you know, this phrase, love each other. And you think, what is this? Is it just coach speak? Is it just another slogan? And she said, but, but we found out it wasn't, you know, it, it, we found out it, it, it's genuine. It's, it's something that, um, that Alan means that, that, you know, his coaches mean that everybody practices. And that's not to say that, you know, IU is this, this, you know, perfectly harmonious, kumbaya singing program that there's going to be of course problems and people who are unhappy and players who get dis disenfranchised whatever um but you talk to the people around the program uh, and not just within the program but the people you know that the players parents their high school coaches those things it registers with them and then you look at the success, the way he turns around the defense in 2016. Again, the three seasons he's had as head coach, culminating in last year, the way that this team was trending to, to perform this year. Um, and you sort of look at it and say, well, listen, at the end of the day, that stuff's not meant for you or me. Um, it's, it's meant for them, and they're clearly buying into it, and it's clearly making a difference. And so, you know, when he says things like we don't blink and we just keep going and on and on, Again, it sounds cliche, and I suppose it is, but it, it seems to work with his players. And uh, at the end of the day, the minute that I think that Tom Allen is more worried about what I think than what his players think is the minute I, I will be prepared to say that it's not going to work anymore for him here. Um, as long as his primary constituencies, his players, his coaches – uh, the families around his program, et cetera, are, are bought into it, and, and it clearly has an effect on them, then he's doing his job. I've, I've said for years, two years, two or three years now, that he reminds me so much of Dan Quinn, and you know this as an Atlanta guy, the slogans, defensive background, and just like all about the team or it doesn't matter. Um, that's where they kind of uh, – mix for me I've always thought they were very similar in that way um, I do want to ask you about the departure of Kalen DeBoer back to Fresno State and the not the addition because he was already on the staff but the promotion of Nick Sheridan to offensive coordinator in practices before um, COVID or even during the, uh, the startup of practices again have you seen a drop off or a change in the offensive scheme or a, you know, what kind of changes have you noticed? Well, to be honest, I mean, I haven't seen a practice um, because their spring practices just, I, I was still kind of in the, in the, the, the basketball mixer when they broke spring practice and I never saw any spring practice um, before everything got shut down. I don't expect a huge change. Um, 
you know, I know people weren't thrilled by the Nick Sheridan hire. I'll be honest, at first blush, I was a little bit surprised by it just because it seemed like IU had a lot of money to throw around in, in making that hire. But then when I kind of thought more deeply about it, you know, Sheridan has coached quarterbacks at two different Power Five programs. He was considered a really promising young assistant, you know, not by IU people, but like by national people that you talked to when IU hired him in 2017. I think he got tarred a little bit with some of the shortcomings of the offense in, in his first two seasons at IU. But even last season when he moved to tight ends coach because DeBoer wanted to be quarterbacks coach, um, the truth was he was still very involved with the quarterbacks. You would see him on the sideline between series, he's the one that's, that's relaying a lot of adjustments to the quarterbacks, is going through things with the quarterbacks. DeBoer was coaching from the uh, from the, the press box and obviously still was communicating with those players. But Sheridan had a really hands-on role, even if he wasn't quarterbacks coach. And he had a hands-on role when you talk to people around the program in game planning as well. Now, the difference is experience because I don't expect the system to change very much. Truthfully, if you look at um, – you know, some of the packages and some of the, um, you know, some of the formations that Kalen DeBoer put out last year. They, there's not a massive difference in what structurally Indiana was trying to do between Mike DeBoer and Kalen DeBoer. It was the way certain things were mixed up. It was, you know, the way certain things were emphasized. It was also just execution, to be frank. Um, you know, like when you when you watch the way Peyton Ramsey and Mike Penix were delivering the football last season, I mean, both were just substantially better passers than they'd been the previous year. Um, and, and that changes a lot too. Even when you're running stuff like those little tunnel screens, those, those passes have to come on time. I mean, perfectly on time because it takes a half second for a play like that to fail just because it, de- it doesn't develop quickly enough or it takes too long to develop, et cetera. Um, I think the big question was just going to be experience more than anything else, because again, Sheridan is a young coach. I think he's actually about my age. I'm 33. You know, DeBoer had been a head coach at an NAIA university. He had been an offensive coordinator at one, two, three stops before he came to Indiana. He had a lot of that experience of just how to install his offense, how to go week to week, how to build wrinkles in, when to pivot to what, et cetera. You know, that, that's something that can only come with time, and, and Nick Sheridan needs that. So you couldn't really know for sure what, um, what you know, what Nick Sheridan was kind of going to change, or, or maybe the better way to put it would be how Nick Sheridan being the one running the offense, even if the offense didn't change a ton structurally or terminologically, um, how, you know, sort of his, his bend on it, if you will, was, was going to look different. But um, – you know, now I guess we'll, at, at best case scenario, have to wait until the spring to find out. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be spring, if not next fall. But something that might come sooner, I kind of want to rotate a little bit, is college basketball. And you saw the Pac-12, I think yesterday, maybe two days ago, said they're not playing any basketball or any sports until 2021. Big 10, um, they, they're staying quiet for now. They're focusing on football and fall sports. But talking about IU basketball and, you know, last year they had their chance to make the tournament. There should have been probably about a 10 seed. Um, of course, you had Al Durham, Finnessy back, and then Devontae Green and Deron Davis departing, as well as Justin Smith transferring to Arkansas. So if the season starts normally, even if it starts maybe December, whatever, a little bit later, but there still is a season, 
what's the biggest storyline you're looking to? Is it going to be how they replace some of those departures or maybe some of the income, the, the newcomers like Lander or uh, Anthony Leal or Geronimo, some of these new guys? I mean, I think it is, I think the, the biggest question is just going to be sort of the redeployment of resources. You have a team that is a little bit thinner in the front court. It's still very deep in the front court, but thinner than it was last year. Um, but deeper in the backcourt, you mentioned Christian Lander. You know, I think even if you're only getting maybe a, a reserve player's role out of someone like Anthony Leal or Trey Galloway, all of a sudden with Armand Franklin, Lander, Rob Finnessy, Al Durenbeck, you can think about more true three-guard lineups. Um, I think you were going to see a, a, an increased emphasis on Race Thompson. You know, we saw that toward the end of last year and the way that he dovetailed with Joey Brunk and, and Trace Jackson Davis. Actually, interestingly enough, um, I forget exactly where I saw this today. I apologize, but somebody basically had efficiency margins for the two-man front courts that Indiana put out last season or for times when Indiana basically put, you know, one center down low with surrounded by wings and guards and the two most efficient lineups that Indiana had in that specific sort of circumstance last year were actually Race Thompson and Joey Brunk first and then Race Thompson and Trace Jackson Davis second. So I think you'll see a lot more of Race Thompson obviously provided he can stay healthy. But I think the the biggest thing, I mean, you're obviously looking to shoot the three better. You're wondering how the, the sort of point guard um, rotation is, is going to shake out when you've got Finnessy and Lander both there at the same time. Um, but I think that, that more than anything else, what I was interested in is a team that has – kind of gone big, trended big anyway, for the last couple of years um, when it's been healthy is, is suddenly maybe going to have the luxury. And, and Archie Miller has, has basically said that he was, he was planning on uh, going for more small lineups, you know, going for more true three guard lineups. And, and that's going to obviously change what you can do defensively. It's going to change the way you rebound, which has been a, a key sort of a core principle of Indiana's defense in the last couple of seasons, but it's also going to change the ways in which you can attack, the ways you can score, the ways you can get out in transition. You know, if you have a lineup, for example, of Rob Finnessy, Christian Lander, and Al Durham, that's not the biggest guard lineup in the world, although it is just college, but it's also a lineup where you've got three dudes that can legitimately initiate your offense all on the floor at the same time. And so you basically are asking an opponent, where do you want to start? You know, who, who do you want to, who do you want to pick up? Because all three of these dudes can be a de facto point guard. Um, so, you know, it's, it's – there are a, a lot of interesting storylines around that team, particularly fitting into what looks like a fantastic conference. Um, but the biggest one for me was just going to be sort of how, when all of a sudden we've removed, you know, in the last two years, Juwan Morgan, Deron Davis, uh, obviously Evan Fitzner, even though he was only there for one year, and, and Justin Smith, how you maybe – pivot to uh, a, just a different rotation in terms of where you put your, you know, where you, 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 where you put your minutes guard versus forward versus center versus wing. And I'm trying to think, so you're talking about the three guard lineup and now Justin Smith gone um, one name. I don't know if you mentioned him or not, but obviously a big part of the program was a good recruit. What, two years ago, redshirt his freshman year. Played all right at the beginning of the season last year, but then really picked it up, especially in shooting come Big Ten play, Jerome Hunter. And with that three-guard lineup, he could probably be a four, stretch four, and then you have Tracer Joey down low. 
is that a, a good position for his skill set to be a four with small uh, three guards kind of running the show, dribbling, passing when need be? Um, so not necessarily kind of controlling the ball, but having the ball in positions to score as a four for Jerome. Well, I think the question you'd have to ask there is how he can defend the four and how he can rebound the four. Because if he, if he can be adequate in those areas and he can be a consistent three-point threat, then yes, I think you're looking at someone, you know, if you want a recent comparison, it's, it's not perfectly apples to apples, but somebody a little bit like Christian Wadford. Um, but, you know, number one, he's got to knock down the three. I think no matter where he plays, Jerome Hunter's got to be a consistent three-point threat. Number two, if you are going to play him at the four, unless you are playing, um, unless you are playing in a in a setup or against against a team that is not playing particularly big, you do have to ask, you know, is he going to be able to rebound the ball effectively at, at the four position? Is and is he going to be able to defend effectively at the four? Now, you know, you can also maybe paint me a scenario where Trace Jackson Davis is just so good protecting inside, protecting the rim, cleaning the glass, that you can get away with a little bit of that. Um, but I, I do think that more of what you're going to see of Jerome Hunter this year will probably be at the three um, than at the four. Not that Indiana will never do it, but I, I think that, you know, if, if you're asking me for sort of minutes predictions, I think your core three players at the four and five spots are going to be Race Thompson, Trace Jackson, Davis, Joey Brunk with – uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of Jerome Hunter potentially mixed in, but then more of kind of Hunter Durham, uh, Hunter and Al Durham at the three, you know, Armand Franklin, Christian Lander, Rob Finnessy at the two. And then, you know, maybe you've got some openings for those other three freshmen, Geronimo, Leal, Galloway to, to earn some minutes. Maybe one of them winds up having a bigger role um, than I expect right now, but you sort of, you're able to at very least kind of look at all three of them and say, listen, the pressure's off. It's just about what you can do for us. It's not about what we need you to do. And you mentioned uh, how effective Hunter could be if Trace is just a monster inside and in the paint. And so I kind of have a twofold question for you regarding Trace is, uh, do you think he would have came back to school if, if IU plays out in the tournament? And also, is there a second year leap we're going to see from Trace and where do you think his, his ultimate ceiling is come next, I guess, April or June or, or I guess June, whenever they do the, uh, the next NBA draft. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously NCAA tournament performance can always boost draft stock. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I think that it, you know, it, to be honest, I actually thought it, Jackson Davis was was refreshingly honest when he said the reason he didn't declare was because he knew that he would need to impress in the workout settings. Now, again, he could go into the, the tournament and have two or three big games, you know, um, that happens. But I, I also think of a player like Thomas Bryant, who, you know, basically sort of had a very similar scenario in 2016, went into the tournament, completely outplayed Scalabissier, was – the primary reason, frankly, why Indiana kind of alongside maybe Yogi Ferrell, why Indiana beat Kentucky in the round of 32. And it was still probably just about worth it for Bryant to come back for another year. Um, although you, you can have maybe a debate over whether it, it boosted his draft stock as, as much as he'd have hoped. Um, I think what really more was going to affect Trace Jackson Davis was going to be the, um, 
the chance to get into some NBA workouts. Now, as for a sophomore jump, um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't put it past him. I think he's got to get better with his right hand. Um, I think he's got to be more consistent. You know, if you look at his numbers against some of the teams that maybe could match him up a little bit more directly in the post last year, he didn't struggle all the time, but he did struggle sometimes. Um, I know he wants to develop a little bit more of a face-up game. If you're going to be a 6'9 center in the league, you've got to have some of that. I don't think you necessarily need to be bombing three-pointers, but you've got to be able to step away from the basket and still be effective offensively. But there are tools there that, that any NBA scout would like. He's got long arms. He's explosive off the ground. I agree with Archie Miller in the sense that I think, I think lefties just kind of screw people up. Like it just, it's, you're just not used to it. You don't see enough of it. Even if you go over it and film and practice, you know, in, in the heat of the moment, last five minutes of a long, exhausting game, you just – something instinctively tells you to expect him to go right and he goes left. Um, he's got a penchant for drawing fouls. He's a much better rim protector than I thought he would be at this stage in his career. So I think he, he, you know, there's absolutely the foundation for that. Um, I think the biggest question to kind of wrap, to kind of roll all that into one ball is what does it look like when Trace Jackson Davis is, is, you know, sort of unquestionably the main man. I know he was to an extent for Indiana last season, but really that was something that it felt like sort of developed as the season went along. This is one where he's coming in and everybody knows, you know, the, the beating heart of this team is, is a guy down low and everything starts there and then spirals out um, in, in all those different facets, facets I talked to talked about um, how, how does he, how does he basically respond? And I always see on social media with Trace, him with obviously um, with Armand Franklin, but also specifically Joey Brunk. I love that camaraderie that those two have. It's very fun to watch on all social media, but then you'd see it translate in the game when they're playing four or five, you know, they need to be comfortable with each other. And I think we'll see that. We saw it last year. I think we'll see it more this year. And Big Ten basketball, you mentioned it. Last year, undoubtedly the best t uh, conference in the NCAA. And it's going to be again this year. They have Illinois is going to be a top three team in the Big Ten with Ayo Sunmu coming back, Kofi Coburn coming back, Luca Garza is coming back for the Hawkeyes. Penn State might drop up a little bit, but the, the main teams, Michigan State, Michigan, IU now are going to be back and, and better than ever almost. So with that being said, is there a specific player or kind of breakout guy that you see taking the next step? Is it going to be Garza kind of reevaluating himself back to that national player of the year candidate or, or someone else you see in the conference? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to look past Garza. You know, yeah. I mean, listen, you know, guys struggle sometimes to kind of live up to the hype just because the hype builds so much in the offseason. I think that happened to Robbie Hummel, for example, um, where Hummel, you know, Robbie Hummel had a perfectly good season, but we just spent all summer talking about how good he was. And then, you know, and um, I think the flip side to that, though, is Garza's numbers were just so insane. I mean, they, you know, it was just it was just so unbelievable what he did offensively. Um, that it would be hard for me to look past him. I, I do really like Ayo Desunmu, um, but, you know, truthfully, I think I like Ayo Desunmu a little bit more because of uh, how he gets his buckets than, than just the, the raw numbers he gets. It will always kind of be a, an award. I mean, listen, if, if Luca Garza averages 23 and 12 and Ayo averages 19 and 
you know, six and four assists, but Io wins the league and Luca Garza finishes fifth. I mean, you know, at that point, Io probably has a strong case. Um, it's, I mean, listen, it's as good of a season as the Big Ten's had since at least 2013. And that 2013 season was Cody Seller and Victor Oladipo. It was Trey Burke. Um, you know, it was, uh, who else was Nick Stauskas, Glenn Robinson, the third. Michigan State was loaded that season. I mean, that was an, a fantastic, fantastic season in the Big Ten. Uh, in terms of talent, it was an unbelievable grind watching that Big Ten race play out. And if we do have college basketball this winter, I think the Big Ten really has a chance to be, frankly, that good again. Um, it will be interesting kind of to see how everything shakes out if we only have a conference season because, you know, coaches coaches schedule their seasons basically around peaking at certain times. And, um, you know, like Archie Miller got a lot of criticism, for example, for not playing a, a true non-conference road game last season. But, you know, he would have told you he needed that whole month of November to let his team play teams it could beat up on just so that it could work out some of the kinks and some of the, you know, figure out what worked and what didn't. There were so many moving pieces and new parts and guys that maybe needed some of that confidence, even some returning guys that just needed some of that confidence to understand, hey, this is the impact I can have. Um, all of a sudden you may not get that and it may just be sort of throwing everybody in the deep end together. But um, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. And those are, you know, you're talking about the best player in the conference. I, I, I would start with and um, uh, Luca Garza. I don't think it necessarily stops just there. I think you can make a case for Trace Jackson Davis, you know, potentially a case for Nate Reavers. Um, you know, we could, I mean, we could, we could go down the list, but it, it Certainly those are the two guys that you go into the season expecting to have the biggest influence on everything. I'm going to have you do a 180 and put on a different hat. And this is your fandom. Um, you said you're from Atlanta. I am too. And there's not a lot of us up in this state. Uh, so I where'd just kind of want to school. I went to Woodward Academy in college. Park. Okay. I went to, I went to Riverwood. So. Oh, all right. So though, we're right in the same, I, I live in Sandy Springs. So we're in the same okay. area. There you go. Um, so let's talk, let's start with the Falcons. Um, I, I am genuinely interested because I have my friends and I have my family, um, but I have no one up here that went through a similar experience with me. So I want to know where you were and what your day was like after the Super Bowl loss. I promise you, I promise you my story is worse than yours. <laughs> um, like Indiana, was, Indiana was covering uh, – or excuse me, Indiana had a game at noon that Sunday, noon Eastern in Wisconsin. When I go to Madison alone, I fly because it's about a seven and a half hour drive. So it's a lot to do kind of, you know, two days back to back. But the problem with the noon game is there's not a ton of late flights out of Madison. So I plan to stay two days. Um, so I flew in the Saturday. I flew out the Monday. Obviously, I knew the Falcons would be in the Super Bowl. It was my 30th birthday. Um, and I... I was going to be alone for it. And I just sort of imagined that I didn't really want to share that experience with random strangers. So I planned to just get a pizza or something and, and post up in my room, in my hotel room, uh, at kickoff my, or excuse me, during the coin toss, uh, my hotel, there was a knock on my hotel room door and I went and answered it. And it was my wife. She had flown from Indianapolis to Madison to surprise me for my birthday. I did not know she was coming. And that is basically how everything built up to that day. Um, 
So it was, it was about as much peak Atlanta sports as, as you can get, not just for the result, but obviously also for the experience. That was a, uh, a, a remarkable, I mean, almost, I was almost in awe of just how on brand that entire process was. And people don't get it. Like if you're not from Atlanta, you, you don't understand what it's like season in and season out. And it doesn't matter really. The only ones that have def- defied that so far were are united and, but they had the similar game against the Columbus crew a couple years ago um, where I thought it was all going to come crumbling down. But so I, I was, I was a senior in high school and, and that was all we were talking about at that point. And just to have to go to school on that Monday was I would, teachers didn't teach students didn't learn. It was depressing. And I want to depress you a little more, one more time. Um, what about last spring or I'm sorry, last fall um, for the Cardinals Braves game or for the infield fly, whichever one you want to talk about. Oh, uh, well, the infield fly. I don't, um, yeah, I mean, last year's Cardinals, I think I was doing something. Like, I, I had to be somewhere, I think, for work for the first inning of that game. And so I just sort of – like, it was easy to just sort of disconnect from it. The, the, the game that was probably the most frustrating in that series was game one. Um, yeah. The infield fly – God, it's been a while. I think I just went for a walk. Like, I think I just – I just got so mad I just went for a walk. It's, I mean, it's, it's – uh, there's a guy named Rimbert Brown, who I don't know, but we have a few mutual friends. He used to write for Grantland. He writes for a couple of different publications now. And he wrote something after the Super Bowl, just about the whole experience. And um, he told a story about, and I cannot remember the comedian's name off the top of my head, but this, this felt perfect for basically the, the, the situation. Um, there was once a comedian that was on, a comedy review on the Johnny Carson show on the, on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. And he was sitting between, um, yeah, Dean Martin, I think on one side and obviously Johnny Carson is, is hosting and Ed McMahon is there and there's, there's all these comedy legends and the guy looks to his left and he looks to his right and he just says, do you ever feel like the world is a tuxedo and you're just a pair of Brown shoes? (laughs) and I've never I've never really uh heard or come up with a better explanation for what it feels like to be an Atlanta fan than that I mean you know obviously the the Braves had their run in the 90s and I don't I don't really complain much about that because I'm guessing that there are an awful lot of, of baseball fans elsewhere in the country that would be happy to win one world series and a record number of consecutive division titles but the you know the Falcons um, you know, I mean, I can go back to losing three hockey teams, the Thrashers, the Lightning, uh, even the wonderfully named Macon Whoopi um, <laughs> from the, the 90s. They were an independent league team that played, you know, in like Columbus and Winston-Salem and all these other tiny towns in the South. But, um, yeah, it's it's our lot in life, I suppose. I know. Wait, well, they – we get the strongest test for, you know, for us, but uh, well, one last question about Atlanta and oh, sorry with, with uh, Mike Soroka going down this year and, you know, just a, another chapter in our book. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts about the Braves this year and this lineup Acuna second night in a row, not playing now. 
Um, where does this lineup stand? How long is the win? Or yeah, how long is the window for this team if they're healthy? Well, I think the window is. Um, sorry, I sound like I'm crying. I've got something stuck in my throat. I'm trying desperately not to cough. Um, I, I mean, I don't think the window's closed. Although I would be, you know, just as someone who has covered Achilles injuries, I would be worried about Mike Soroka. It is probably the most devastating. Um, I guess you'd say common injury, you know, in the sense that it's, it's, it's not like what happened to Victor Oladipo where you kind of have to Google it and then explain to somebody what it is and how the, the joint fits together. It is, it is something that we are all familiar with, but unlike knee ligaments, we've not really come up with a, a way, a tried and true way to guarantee that you can repair it and then strengthen it and get it back to basically as new. Um, so I, I would be worried about Soroka in that sense. Sorry, I'm going to cough again. I apologize. Let me mute. This. All right, something something stuck in my throat. Um, I think the window for this team is is still perfectly fine. I think you you know you've got all the major players under contract. Many of them, quite frankly, favorable contracts for the next what I think three years at least. Um, I can't imagine a world where the Braves let Freddie Freeman walk. You know you've got a lot of pitchers on really favorable terms between now and arbitration, much less when they'll go and they'll hit full free agency. Um, I haven't seen a ton of them, but my sense is Ian Anderson has a lot of potential. So if you can get Soroka healthy again and then pair or put Ian Anderson in a rotation behind him and Max Fried, I think that's a very, very strong rotation. Um, as you know, this, this season is going to be tough. And when you think about the, Soroka's recovery next season maybe too because I don't know that you're really going to see much from Mike Soroka in the the 2021 season either frankly just again knowing what I know about the way that that Achilles injuries tend to to repair Um, but I think that you know this season is really going to come down at this point to how far the bullpen can carry the Braves because they're pretty much down to one starter yeah and I guess if there's if there's one advantage to the shrunken schedule, it's that you can get yourself to a place where if, if, you know, two or three of the five turns in your rotation are just openers that are only meant to go maybe one, maybe two turns through the order, no more than about three, four innings. You can ask your, your relievers to pitch a little bit more because they can, they can pitch more often and still get to the end of the season and only be at a half to two thirds of, what a normal season's workload would be. And obviously it's a very strong bullpen and, and frankly, it's going to have to carry them here for a little while because, you know, I don't think you're going to see Ozzy Albies for a minute. It does seem like Ronald Acuna, there's concern about him. And, you know, you're not necessarily seeing other players, Austin Riley, Marcelo Zuna. I mean, Ozuna has been fine, but you're not seeing guys kind of play out of their skin to carry the load while your big stars are down. And so if you're the Braves, you basically lost three of your four best players. Um, yeah, you're playing three or four right now, and that's that's pretty rough. Yeah, to, uh, to put your your insider hat back on, um, just for a second, um, do you have a process for for vetting your sources and when and when not to come out with information? And then, uh, what advice would you give your younger self, like just kind of starting out and doing what you're you're now entrenched in? What do you mean in terms of like not coming out with information? Sorry. So in terms of like being an insider, you get told a bunch of different things. And, and so you have to kind of vet sources and figure out, you know, who's credible, who's not, and, and kind of when and where to come out with information. So I was just wondering if you had a process for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it just kind of happens. 
but you just you learn who's um, trustworthy over the course of years doing the job. Um, I know that's a boring answer, but it's true. And, and I think it's, it's certainly always important, I think, to be conservative. I think there are reporters that like to <clears throat> tweet about sources and they, you know, they tweet and they attribute information anonymously because it, it sort of trumps up their importance. Um, but I think you should be really judicious with anonymous reports because at the end of the day, if you're wrong, nobody's name is on the line. Nobody's neck is on the line except yours. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it is just kind of being, you know, being more judicious in, in that way. And if you are careful, if you are conservative in, you know, what information you pursue to report, you'll learn over time without maybe getting burned, who's got good information, who you can trust, who trusts you, you know, for that matter, because that, it goes both ways. You've, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to earn that trust as well. I think in, you know, to your second question about just what you, you know, what I would uh, tell kind of my younger self, I think um, what I say a lot is that when I was in college, we'd have, you know, professionals come in and talk to classes and they'd say, you need to learn how to do everything. We don't know where newspapers are going. You need to learn how to write, edit, shoot, shoot and edit photos, shoot and edit video, you know, layout design pages, everything, maybe even learn some, <clears throat> some HTML code, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've never been asked to do any of that, but what I have been asked to do is be very nimble about, be very open-minded, it's probably a better term, um, about how I do my job. And should we, should we try to change the way we approach writing a game story? Should we try to change the way we approach Covering a beach, do we need to cover this? Just because we've covered it every year doesn't mean we need to do it every year, but maybe there's something we're missing that we've been ignoring because we've always kind of done it a certain way. Um, so we're gonna try and restructure things in, you know, in different senses. Um, I've, I've always sort of just tried to impress to young people kind of the idea that it's, it's better just to be willing to be flexible. Don't feel like you have to cover every single base because you probably never will ask to, but be willing to be flexible um, and be willing to try just about it. Well, Zach, thank you so much. This has been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you can find Zach on Twitter at Zach Osterman. You can read him on the Indie Star and you can listen to him on the Mind Your Banners podcast. Zach, have a good one. Thank you so much. Right, we had to take a quick time out because our interview happened, but I believe I was in the middle of talking about the Braves. As you said, Keys, we are a model of authenticity on this podcast, so we keep it real. But I was talking about the Braves. I am worried, as you'll listen to in a few minutes, Zach Osterman talked about um, the impact of losing Mike Soroka, and that is a very big concern for everyone in the city of Atlanta do I think the Braves can still make it to the postseason? Absolutely, because the NL East and all the pundits who said the Mets and the Phillies and the Nationals would be the team to beat, they suck. Those teams are bad, and the pundits were wrong. So, yes, the Braves can absolutely win the NL East because I do not think the Marlins are a legit contender, even though they are leading the division right now. Even without Soroka, I think this team is still one of the best in the NL. They do have a lot of question marks in that starting rotation, though, which is where my 
my hesitancy lies. So that's where I'm at with the Braves. And I think we've all teased you with different with the Red Sox this year because they're not great. But Doug, with the Cubs, you and I both have places where our teams are the best in the league and then places where you could use some improvement. And I think unless you're the New York Yankees or, and that's pretty much it because they got all the money, but everyone's got a hole and you just got to figure out how to plug it. Uh, Listen, go ahead, Doug. Listen, for at least for the Braves, like, like you said, the Braves and the Cubs are a little bit different than the Red Sox so far this season. But already, what, 20 games into the season now, it's, it's going by quick. And by the time we get a month in, two months in, it's going to be playoffs. So just looking at it from a distance, you can't be upset about anything right now. There are, there are holes, like you said, but big picture, nothing to complain I hate the 2020 Boston Red Sox with a burning passion. I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about how bad the Yankees starting rotation is minus Garrett Cole. Uh, that's a gigantic problem. You know, it, when you get into the playoffs, it's a series. Um, that guy's not going to be able to pitch every day. So that's something the Yankees are going to have to shore up. Um, but yeah, uh, the 2020 Red Sox are probably the most depressing team to watch play baseball because it's not like, I mean, they have literally no pitching. They have no pitching at all, and it hurts because Chris Sale is injured. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez gets COVID and then contracts the heart condition after COVID. So I, I can't say enough bad things about the 2020 Boston Red Sox, and I just I want the season to be over. The Orioles are eight and seven. The Red Sox are six to six and eleven. We'll just we'll leave it like that. And, and I was also the Red Sox could could easily be. I don't even want to talk. Listen, I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm right, so we're not upset. Talk about, I'm so upset about this. I'm so upset about this season. They're so bad. The pitching is so bad. The offense has been abysmal. I didn't think it would get this bad. I really had high hopes coming into the season. I thought we were going to pitch a tiny bit better than we were doing, but I just, I'm sad. That's because you're a delusional sports fan, just like the rest of us. I thought the Hawks were going to make the NBA playoffs. We won 20 games. So, Let's move to the bubble while we're talking about the NBA. I, for a guy who I admittedly, I don't watch the NBA unless the Hawks are good. I have watched a lot of the bubble this year. Um, and I think for me and I think for everyone, the eighth seed for the Western Conference, that battle between those six teams to start off has been amazing to watch. And the way the Suns have performed specifically – and uh, as of late, the Trailblazers, too. So, Doug, I know you wanted to talk about this. Suns have won seven straight. They have not lost a game in Orlando. They have – obviously, Devin Booker, people love him. He's a great player. He's a great shooter. He can drive. He's a leader. There's nothing to dislike about him. But the fact that Aiton's playing well and some of these other supporting guys that were kind of nobodies before finally coming into their own – in a time where they're playing tough teams, if you look at the seven teams they beat, it's the Mavericks, Clippers, um, the Thunder I know they beat, and so some good teams, it, they're not playing the Hawks and Bulls right now. They're, they're Every game, game in and game out, they're competing. Uh, right now, the Grizzlies, they were in that eighth spot to start. They've dropped out right now a half game, I believe, back then the Blazers. And let me talk to you about the Blazers because this is the most entertaining team in basketball right now. And I've been a fan of Dame Lillard since he was out of Weaver State, but this guy is electric. He can shoot from deep, and deep equals like 40 feet logo deep, and drive, pass, competitive. He'll trash talk. He's confident in himself. 
it's a guy that isn't flashy, but if you like basketball and you like this, the grind and shout out to the late Kobe, he was like this too, then you'll love Dame Lillard. I, so I'm looking at the standings right now. Um, New Orleans and Sacramento have been eliminated. San Antonio, Phoenix, Memphis, and Portland are still alive. Portland is a half game up on Memphis and Phoenix and a full game up on uh, San Antonio. So everyone's still in it technically, but San Antonio is not super special. I've watched a few of their games. And I think the intriguing matchup would be a play-in game between Portland and Phoenix to get that eighth seed. Memphis, like you said, has fallen off. John Morant, not that he hasn't been good, but he hasn't been great. And the rest of their lineup really hasn't helped that much either. Losing Jaron Jackson Jr. for the season also doesn't help. Um, but, Doug, like you said, I, I, I don't have a, a fight or a team in this fight. So I, I do like watching um, Portland, and I'm unfortunately back on the gambling grind. And uh, Phoenix has caused me to lose a lot of money because I've bet against them a few times. Um, so I won't be doing that anymore. But I think as, as a, I, for the NBA, um, I am a good case study for them. Because like I said, I don't watch all the time. And I do love the feel of fans in the stadium. And I can tell you that watching these games has been a really positive experience for me. Um, even without fans, I think the, the stadiums or the, I guess just the courts in Orlando have made it seem like it's a good environment. The players look like they're having a good time. And more importantly, they haven't had a positive test in a month. So I think the bubble experiment has been incredibly positive. Because it came out, I think, this morning or last night. Yeah, that the, M- the NBA has come out and said that they're going to allow family members and longtime personal acquaintances or something like that. Whatever the wording idea. was in quotes. I, I mean, I get it. And, and, okay, you want to bring the families in. and all. Why acquaintances? Why friends? Why subject the, the pool that's been clean for two months to more of the outside world. I just don't see a pro. That's a it's, Manfred brain idea right there. That's not because, the idea. I don't hate the idea. And like, it's people's family, but also there's exactly. a, I mean, they're taking a risk. It's a huge risk, but the players want it. This has kind of been the plan to slowly incorporate first the players and the coaches and, and essential personnel. Then a couple weeks in, add a couple of people. Then a little bit more people start to leave bring some more people in. The, and obviously you'll be testing. They'll be subject to all rules and guidelines, what not. But, I mean, I, I just think the funny part that I saw when I read this was the long-term acquaintances. It's like they're going to do background checks. And like they're going to get their fingerprints for all these guys coming. It's like, oh, my gosh. And then uh, It's just very interesting. But I think this was a plan all along to slowly bring and merge others in. The first, the first tweet I saw, I think that was the reply was if Kendall Jenner's at the Sixers playoff game, yeah. dude's going and fighting everybody in flip flops. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's gonna happen though. They're gonna people like are gonna bring girlfriends in, and it's gonna make a lot of people upset because one of the girlfriends might come in. Like I don't want to say. Anything, but <laughs> I'm just. I'm There's so scared. many things, dude. In quotes too. Just, <laughs> so, good. so good. So good. Briefly, uh, Dame Lillard's beef, let's call it that, with Paul oh, yeah. George the other day and Pat Beverly. But the, with Paul George, when he came back at Paul George saying uh, that he switched teams three times for chasing a ring and still been unsuccessful, that was – it. 
for, that was, for those of you that don't know, that was immediately after Damian Lillard missed two free throws to potentially win the basketball game. Um, a crucial game, too. Paul, yeah, yeah, hugely important. And Paul George came at him, and then Dame clapped back with that. And then, again, going after Skip Bayless, after Skip Bayless came after him. And people love to clown on Skip Bayless, and I think it's completely warranted. But uh, I just thought it was excellent social media by Dame Willard in the last week. I thought he was 100% in the right and did everything perfectly. He beefed with Paul George for a little bit. I think under – the curtain or behind the curtains they they figured it out they talked it out a little bit they said nothing was personal they just like to trash talk people that's just kind of their competitive nature but the skip bayless i I don't know (laughs) if they're gonna hash that one out i think they're gonna go their separate ways and continue their their twitter clown emojis back and forth i hope so man I, i live for that um i do i i know our 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 listeners may not be the biggest golf fans but I am, and I'm going to talk about it. So we had the PGA Championship last weekend. And if you don't watch major championship golf and you're a sports fan, what are you doing with your life anyways? Um, Colin Morikawa, who has taken the tour by storm, really, this calendar year, won his second event of the restart, his first major in just his second um, major ever. He played in the U.S. Open last year, and that's the only time he's played in a major. So a huge deal. Um, he's gotten – comps to Tiger Woods in his prime because of how calm he remains on the course, kind of that killer. Um, yeah, go ahead. There's always comps to Tiger Woods. For I know, but this, it wasn't, it wasn't his, that is true. Cause Spieth got the same thing. And but same it was with not Rory for his, everyone. It wasn't for his game. It was for his attitude, which I, I got, I get, uh, I get, we weren't old enough to remember it. We were in diapers, but Tiger did completely shut down emotionally when he was in the lead. And you saw Morikawa do that too. Um, briefly, course layout. It was at a municipal course. Jim Nance would not shut up about how it was at a municipal course. And I love Jim Nance, but he would not stop mentioning it. He's so that was cool. It. Yeah, yeah. It's TPC Harding Park. Apparently, um, someone I know out in San Francisco told me that uh, in the last couple of years, Harding Park has gotten a lot of renovations. So the course is really looking the best it has in a long time. No fans. I didn't think that was a huge deal. Um, People did complain about CBS's broadcasting, but uh, Frank Noblo, Ian Baker Fitch, Nick Faldo, the Emelman brothers, Dottie Pepper, best in the business. They're all amazing. So I didn't feel like I was missing anything with the fans. Of course, you had those couple screaming in the fence on like 13 or something where you had the the street was right there. Um, The biggest storyline, I guess, that wasn't uh that didn't involve Morikawa was Kepka completely melting on Sunday I think he shot 74 um take took himself completely out of it and of course his continued antics with Bryson um Bryson's a clown like everything he does is warranted or everything that comes at him is warranted but what was surprising to me it was twofold was Brooks came after Dustin Johnson who is one of the most respected player tournament players on tour has triple the amount of wins as Brooks does. And he just said DJ couldn't close, which is a fact in Brooks's defense. He cannot close majors. He's had a 54 hole lead six times. Um, and then Rory came back at Brooks and said that was completely disrespectful. Rory being the, the beacon of manners on the PGA tour, which he's earned. 
Um, I, I'm interested because if you're on social media, you saw all this. So I'm interested to Doug, your thoughts on, on the Bryson, or I guess on Brooks coming after people and people coming after Brooks. Brooks is a talker. Um, he, he is, that's just his nature. He's for most of it. I've never found it a problem. Bryson, on the other hand, I was listening to Ryan Russo the other day and he goes, yeah, I was talking to some golf people. I go, is Bryson really that bad? And he goes, <laughs> it's like, yeah, my, my sources are like, yeah, he's like, he's really that bad. Like no one really likes him. He's just disrespectful. Sure. He's nice one-on-one. Um, I don't know. I didn't really look too much into the Brooks Bryson beef. I do want to make two comments though about kind of what you just said. One, I, I did notice the lack of fans, not the whole way through, but on 16, when yeah. Morikawa had that drive, what do you use? He might use a three wood or something. Maybe he, he used drive. his driver. The hole driver. was 296, and he had to fade it onto the green, and he put it within seven feet. I mean, it was one of the best shots I've ever seen. It was unbelievable. And, and if that would have, if fans would have been involved, it, you wouldn't be able to hear anything. It, it would be right. just applause after applause after applause. Uh, the other thing, I do like Morikawa. I don't like the fact that he broke up a seven-way tie, a potential for a mega playoff. That would have been yeah. electric. I don't know how they would have done it with the light going. I guess it's in California. They could have played West Coast ball. Um, but, the, yeah, there's like, what, seven people tied at 10 under before, before yeah, things started. probably like an away. hour or so before the tournament ended. And right. it ended up being a two-way race between Morikawa and Paul Casey and then Morikawa hit that drive on 16, and it was pretty much over. Uh, quickly, before we move on to segments, Tiger, my thoughts were I, his ball striking was as good as it's ever been. Um, he had two really, really bad days of putting. He, on Friday, he couldn't sink a single putt, and as an understatement. got 72. Um, yeah, he played well on Sunday. He was out early. Um, he had a – he, he had a, a good, a fine weekend. I know he wanted to play better. He still shot two under, and uh, now he just gets ready for the U.S. Open in a month. Um, also, Masters November, officially today, Fred Ridley, the chairman of Augusta National, announced there were, are officially going to be no fans. That's no, no surprise, really. Um, and then also, if you were listening on Saturday, Phil Mickelson was in the booth for 90 minutes, and he was electric. If you hate Phil Nicholson, I encourage you to watch these 90 minutes of, uh, of his coverage on CBS. You could audibly hear Nick Faldo wanting to jump across the table and strangle Phil Nicholson. I don't know if it was in jest, but you could tell he was pissed off. And how Phil came onto the, the uh, set, he said he was good at three things, and one of them was talking golf, the other one was playing golf, and he just like smirked about the third thing. So leave that up for interpretation. <laughs> Um, so that was, that was my takeaway. I, I mean, major championship golf is one of my favorite things in the world. So having that this weekend, this past weekend was a treat. Let's so what's the schedule? Done. What's the schedule? So you said masters and, and November, masters is, I think it's the eighth through the 11th, something like that. In November. When's the um, U.S. Open? The U.S. Open is, I believe this coming weekend, a month from now. So in September, so the second weekend in September, um, we've got three weeks of playoff events and then the tour championship. So the tour championship is before Augusta national, or sorry, the U S open. 
um, in, in, uh, in Georgia. So that'll be, we got, we got a lot of good golf between now and the time the masters is being played. Um, so yeah, that's great. We're going to go to good week, bad week. We're going to get right into the segments. Doug, let's start with you. Good week, bad week. So for good week, I'm going to start off, uh, with the Cubs rotation. I talked about it earlier. It's kind of simple. It's kind of Homer, call it what you want. This rotation, if you look at it on paper, this was the, besides the bullpen, the one problem that the Cubs had, but it's turned out to be one of the strengths. John Lester, three quality starts right away. I think he's given up one earned run in each start. That's it. Kyle Hendricks, great. Hugh Darvish still has great movement. Um, that's, that's a great week. Not just a good week, but a great week. Great couple weeks for the Cubs starting rotation. A bad week for me, and this might be controversial, but I think it's time. Bad week, overtime periods for hockey. I think it's time to switch. There is a 5 OT game for Lightning versus the Blue Jackets. I like the idea of it. It's cool, but I think what you can do is change it to three-on-three come period two of overtime or something like that. You should not have to cancel games and postpone. Obviously, obviously the COVID is a part of the reason why they had to do it, but you should not need to postpone broadcast because the game's going to five overtime. The, the skaters are just kind of on their last legs. Good week, NBA bubble as a whole. Uh, I guess the entire vibe around the NBA, we've had some ridiculous games. Storylines are flying. People are talking about the NBA. No positive COVID tests. Um, everything turning up green in the bubble for, for the basketball league. Bad week, 2020 Boston Red Sox, and how bad they are to watch. It's depressing. It, it, it is honestly depressing. Uh, that's as much as I'm going to say about it. And then Rob Manford had a brutal week. Um, oh, well, that's every week. It's just another, another Astros-related catastrophe that he's seemingly mishandled. Um, so, that a boy, Rob. Um, all right, my good week. I really wanted to do bad week, bad week, but I, I'll start with my bad weeks. Bad you week. One to Doug. Well, yeah, Doug, here, I'll, talk, I'll say two. You pick which one you want. Actually, I'm going to pick which one I want. I got bad one, week. Too, keep going. Bad week, Ellen DeGeneres. She had a terrible <laughs> week on Twitter. She got absolutely dragged through the mud for being maybe an abuse, a verbally abusive boss. I don't know how. Um, Incredible accurate those yeah, sorts I, are I, I but tell, she was ragged on twitter so if somebody knows maybe slide into the podcast dms or something yeah absolutely let us know and also bad week houston astros i mean the same with manfred it's like every week's a bad week with them until people forget about this and it doesn't look like it's going away um good week i'm gonna say good week me because i'm back in bloomington and i'm out of atlanta so that is good week me all right keys over reaction of the week as much as I hate the 2020 Boston Red Sox with all of my being, the 2021 Boston Red Sox with the, with the return of Christopher Allen Sale, with the return of Eduardo Rodriguez, we need to sign an arm or two uh, in the rotation, an arm or two in the bullpen. But J.D. Martinez will not be this bad. Rafael Devers will not be this bad. Benintendi will not be this bad. Uh, Verdugo is only getting better. Bogarts is a stud. The offense is unbelievable. Vasquez is a stud. Um, they have a top five offense in baseball. If they can get any semblance of pitching like we've seen with the New York Yankees, they can be a force. They're two years removed from being, having their best season of all time, but basically, uh, and one of the best baseball seasons of all time. Um, and I love High and Bloom and his ability to find relievers. Uh, so I'm all in. I'm all in on the 2021 Red Sox. I've completely shut the book on 2020. Anything that comes with this is cake. Um, blinders on, eyes on 2021. 
Good overreaction. My overreaction of the week is that the Braves have the worst starting rotation in baseball now since Mike Soroka is out. And you can't even tell me who the two through five starters are anymore. Oh, I don't so, have any of those either. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I know you. Yeah, full, well, I didn't, we didn't even talk about Fulty. Man, what a gut punch that was. I, Fulty has had a weird season for the last two and a half seasons. Um, I, I don't know. He's probably going to get called back up just because of the lack of arm. Sheer his, need. his velo went down five miles per hour, and it's gone down the last three years. But the drop-off between last year and this year, and also he was the guy that gave up all those runs in the St. Louis game last oh, yeah. year. and He gets dragged through the mud, and really he was an important part of the rebuild for the Braves. But he lost Velo. He is not able at some times to mentally handle the hardships out on the mound, and it, it's shown. But I think he's going to get another shot just because – he cleared waivers. No one wanted him. So he's back in Gwinnett with the Braves. And um, he'll probably get another shot just because of all the injuries the Braves have had. So that's my overreaction. That was kind of a convoluted overreaction of the week, but that's what it is. Doug, you want to finish this up? Yeah, my overreaction. Some happy news. <laughs> my Well, kind of. My overreaction is the Adam Silver's expectations for expanding the bubble. I, like I said earlier, it's he's he's thinking it's going to go smoothly i really really hope it does i hope <laughs> that there are zero tests if there are a positive test i hope that they stay isolated but i think he's overreacting on how smoothly it's actually going to go i i mean i i think i agree with you why would you change something that's worked so perfectly right i yeah i don't know you're playing with fire you're and first then i bought if it's part of the plan then you can't say anything against it because unlike the MLB, unlike the NFL, unlike obviously college football and the major conferences, the NBA has a plan. And if they're sticking to the plan and they're adhering to their guidelines that have clearly worked, then you can only take them at their word. And we say, from our perspective, why would you do this? We're not the ones risking our lives to go play in this bubble. The players yeah. really comes down to it. It's sure they have to adhere to guidelines, but they have to have some say in it too. And they want to see their families. They have young kids. They have wives. So it, it makes sense for that. Yeah, exactly. Aspect. You, you, you yeah. can't hate on anybody for wanting to see their family. All right, gentlemen. Well, we'll be doing this more often now since everyone is going to be back in Bloomington by the time this, uh, this thing comes up. Well, I guess in the next couple of days. But that is going to do it for us today. Maybe, maybe our last Zoom uh, sideline of, so. <laughs> of the year. Um, I like the sure Zoom to, audio. So it's, it's fun, isn't it? Um, let's see. Maybe be sure to tune in next time. Maybe we'll be in Studio 8 and we'll be in person. We can yell at each other. Be sure to tune in next time for another Sideline Report. I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, i never seen a man.